is Africa Digest. Thursday evening. Good evening and welcome. This is Channel Africa broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Always giving you news from an African perspective. We're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za as well as uh, a little bit later on from 1900 hours. You can also find us on uh, uh, Channel 802 on the GSTV Audio UK. My name is Samora Magesi driving the show with Onlensins and Tracy Bungard as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The Zimbabwean High Court orders the police to immediately release Dr. Peter Makombe. The Empower Women in Health and Wellness Leadership Summit takes place in South Africa. In economics, Apple said to open its first flagship store in all of Latin America in upscale neighborhoods in Mexico City. And in sport, South Africa's national women's under-17 football team to face Zambia in semi-finals of the Kosafa under-17 Women's Championship. But right now, it's time for your news. Here is Onilinsinski. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. Twelve people have been killed in fresh attacks by suspected jihadists in northern Mozambique ahead of elections next month. Suspected jihadists attacked the village of Mindumbe, a few dozen kilometers to the south. Northern Mozambique is born the brunt of a nearly two-year wave of attacks by a shadowy jihadist organization, defying attempts by the government to secure the region. The so-called Islamic State group has recently claimed responsibility for several texts, but this assertion is doubted by experts. Presidential, legislative and provincial elections are due to take place on October 15, with President Filipinius' Free Limo Party, which has been in power since 1975, being the front-runner. At least 30 people are feared to have died following a landslide at a gold mine in Chad close to the border with Libya. The BBC's Will Ross has more. The Chadian Defence Minister Mahamat Abali Salah says the mine at Kuribugudi in the Tibesti region caved in early on Tuesday. News of the accident's taken some time to emerge because of the remoteness of the area and the state of emergency that's in place due to insecurity. Following the discovery of gold in Chad's Tibesti region less than a decade ago, many illegal mines have been set up and accidents are common. The area has very little government presence and is largely lawless. The leader of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, has been taking part in a televised public meeting to discuss the protests that have gripped the territory for more than three months. The BBC's Stephen McDonald. Carrie Lam has been asked again and again why she won't hold a genuinely independent inquiry into allegations of police brutality during this crisis. The chief executive responded that the existing police complaints mechanism is sufficient, adding that she welcomed the questions because dialogue represents the best path forward. Critics have described this televised event as a piece of political theatre. 
U.S. lawmakers are preparing to question President Donald Trump's top intelligence official over a whistleblower complaint that sparked an impeachment inquiry. Acting National Intelligence Director Joseph McGee initially refused to share the complaints with Congress. It refers to a controversial phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. Joseph McGuire is the most senior intelligence official in the country. Democrats will want to know why Mr. McGuire withheld details of the complaint from congressional committees, which are normally informed of such investigations. It took until yesterday for those details to be handed over to Congress. The complaint has now been declassified and could be made public as soon as today. For his part, the president has described the matter as a total smear. Lastly, former French President Jacques Chirac has died at the age of 86. He was President of France from 1995 to 2007. During each time, he opposed the U.S.-led assault on Iraq. He had been suffering from ill health for many years. The BBC's Lucy Williams. President Chirac was seen by many as France's favourite president, more at home in the farms and villages of the French countryside than the gilded halls of Paris. His attempts at domestic reforms largely failed and he was later convicted of embezzlement while serving as Paris mayor. But he won widespread support for his opposition to French involvement in the Iraq war and for being the first leader to recognize France's role in the wartime deportation of Jews. Channel African News, I am Onilin Sienzi. SABC News, independent and impartial from an African perspective. The Zimbabwean High Court on Wednesday evening ordered the police to immediately release Dr. Peter Mogombei, whom they were keeping in hospital against his will. Dr. Mogombei was allegedly abducted on the 14th of September by unknown assailants and was only found five days later tortured. While in hospital, police kept him under guard and restricted him from leaving for further medical examinations in South Africa in violation of a court order. On Wednesday, the police sought an order from the High Court to keep Dr. Magombei in the court, but Judge President Justice George Chiweshe dismissed the application. Simon Muchemo reports from Harare. The drama surrounding the abduction and later the detention of Dr. Peter Magombei in a Harare hospital is continuing. Judge President Justice George Chiweshe ordered the police to release Mogombei as well as allow him to travel to South Africa for his medical attention. Dr. Mogombei was allegedly abducted for his involvement in the work stoppages by doctors who were demanding better salaries and working conditions. When he was later found, five days later, Mogombei was admitted in hospital for medical examinations as he alleged torture in captivity. The police refused to leave Dr. Magombe's site, claiming they were protecting the young doctor, which the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights said was a human rights violation. On Tuesday, a high court ruled that the police should not interfere with Dr. Magombe's travel plans to receive treatment in South Africa, but the police disobeyed the court order. Dr. Magombe's lawyer Alec Mchadehama had this to say following the judge president's ruling on the matter at the High Court. There were two applications in court. One was by the state in terms of which they sought to 
set aside an earlier judgment given by Justice Joe, where he had interdicted the police from interfering with Dr. Magombe's movement to South Africa. So that application by the state was dismissed with cost by the judge president. And then there was yet another application which we had made for habeas corpus, where we were saying the police must be ordered to release Dr. Magombe so that they do not uh, continue to detain him unlawfully. That application has been granted and the police have been ordered to release Dr. Peter Magombe. Muchade Hama told the media that finally Dr. Magombe will be released after saving the police with the latest court order. So we are now making arrangements to save those court orders to the police so that as soon as they are saved with that court order, we expect them to uh, release him from their unlawful custody wherever he is now detained. So that is what is transpired. Uh, my understanding is that he is still in hospital, but under police guard. The court order, we are going to hand them uh, to the police, but we are also going to use the sheriff to save the police, because that is what the rules say, that uh, such orders are saved by the sheriff. But we are also going to take that initiative to save it to the police. Meanwhile, government officials from the president down to the ministers have been making indications that Dr. Magombe's alleged abduction was fed. When pressure by the human rights defenders as well as the western countries started mounting, demanding the release of Dr. Magombe, the police issued a statement to the effect that the young doctor was not under arrest. A media briefing by the information minister Monikwa Mchangwa, who was at pains to explain the police action, was convened on Wednesday. On the 24th of September 2019, 15 unidentified individuals tried to take out Dr. Magombe from his hospital bed, but the police, who were concerned for his safety, had to stop them. They stopped the individual awake to the fact that he was a victim of an alleged previous abduction. They called for reinforcements. The police is keen to apprehend the alleged abductors so as to bring them to justice and protect the public. They therefore sought the court's assistance in delaying Dr. Magombe's departure to South Africa before giving the vital leads they need to advance their investigation. It is duty of the police to protect the safety of all its citizens. The police will not ask for this delay beyond a sensible few more hours. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. There may have not been any pronounced war between Nigerian soldiers and terror groups as it used to be uh, at the earlier stage of the infractions, but the activities of the group, which has taken a guerrilla style of operations, has not ebbed. Through some bandits, uh, though some bandits have recently reached a truce with Katsina State uh, in northwest Nigeria and also surrendered some 30 people in its custody to the government, the situation is nonetheless volatile. Yesterday, the 25th of September, one of the arms of the terror group Boko Haram executed one of the six humanitarian workers it abducted recently. Collins Otohengbe reports. The six are all aid workers with the action against hunger, which has been carrying out its humanitarian work in the northeast enclave where the fight against terror has been sustained since the insurgency started. 
News of the execution of one of the kidnapped aid workers was contained in a video released by Boko Haram, possibly to drive home its request for ransom as it has always done. Having failed to get the deserved attention for payment of ransom, it went on to execute the innocent aid worker, one of the six it had abducted some weeks back. In an earlier video, the only female among the victims simply identified as Grace sent out a plea to the government, the Christian Association of Nigeria, and the organization they work for to take steps to negotiate their release. Um, my name is Grace. I work with Action Against Hunger. We went to work on our way going back to Damasak by Kinari Chamba Ward in Damasak. We, we were caught by this uh, army called the Khalifas. This moment, I want to beg on my Khan Christian Association of Nigeria. We are six here. All of us are staffs. We have families. Some of us have children. This has occurred before in this organization, Red Cross, where uh, some ladies were caught, Hawa and Zipora. And it also happened again with Leah and Alice. But because Nigeria did not do anything about it, they were killed. I am begging on behalf of all of us here that please Nigeria should not allow such to happen to us. I beg the Nigerian and our organization, Action Against Hunger, should please do something and see that we are released. A journalist, Samuel Olukoya, in response to the situation says, aid workers have suddenly become the target of terror groups for ulterior motives, which include attention-seeking and negotiations for release of their apprehended members. Well, it seems the aid worker was uh, executed uh, by, by shooting at, at very close range. And I think it is consistent with what we've had in the past where this particular jihadist group executed uh, some of its uh, captives at, at close range by, by shooting. Uh, the aid workers are about the most uh, high-profile uh, targets this uh, jihadist group can lay their hands on. Increasingly, uh, they are shifting their attention away from children and uh, looking at aid workers who will provide that kind of high publicity which they need. And the aid workers also provide a good uh, bargaining chips for them in terms of uh, money, exchange of prisoners. Uh, we know quite a number of their high-profile uh, leaders are with the military. So it's this kind of uh, people they actually need to bargain with the governments to get money and to get back their prisoners. On several instances, the Nigerian army had claimed that terror gangs have been reduced to a state of inability, but then the evidence seems otherwise. A member of the National Assembly from Borno State, which is the hotbed for the fight against terror, Ahmad Jaha, lamented that all of his constituencies but one are under the control of Boko Haram. In Dambua, I have 10 electoral votes. Only one vote is not under the occupation of Boko Haram. This is as far as Chibok Dambua goes a federal constituency is concerned. Boko Haram population is less than 5% of the Nigerian soldiers. But because they are committed, they are ready to bring the war to our doorsteps. The Deputy Speaker of the House of Representatives, Idris Wase, says there are evidences that government's efforts to end terror being sabotaged by some faceless groups. Today in Meduguri, some NGOs 
have taken hotel for the purpose of uh, their activity, paying upfront for 10 years. And this is coming because there is a support for international community. Through the meeting we had, I want to believe there are some people who are deliberately sabotaging the effort of government, sabotaging the effort of our, our, our very gallant soldiers who are in the field. As a way to give vent to the fight against bandits and terror gangs, Mohamed Mongonu pleaded with the government to create a special fund for the acquisition of necessary arms to vanquish terrorism while pleading for the removal of arms embargo. I urge the federal government to create a special security fund for the security agencies apart from the national budget. Mandate the leadership of the House of Representatives to interface with parliaments of other countries, especially the United States of American Congress, with a view to overcoming all regulations that bar Nigeria's security agencies from purchasing arms and ammunition from those countries. The heartbreaking news of execution of yet another eight workers brought to 38 the number of humanitarian workers that have been arbitrarily executed by terror groups in the fight against insurgency. What is not certain is if they would give room for dialogue on the release of the remaining hostages without difficulties to avoid further casualties. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohingbe for Channel Africa News. Violent clashes erupt in the southern African kingdom of Eswatini after police crack down on civil servants protesting against low pay and rising living costs in Africa's last absolute, absolute monarchy. Teachers and workers went on strike in the four main towns of the country. The workers accused King Swati III of draining public coffers at the expense of his subjects and they are fighting for a 7.8% salary increase. Becky Makubo is the editor of Eswatini's monthly political magazine, The Nation. He has more on the strike. There were injuries reported yesterday between uh, in the clashes between workers and, and government mm, mm. Uh, and the police. Um, in fact, that maybe you might find it interesting to know that even my son, who's 14 years old, was a victim of TFS attack. Sure. Because the police, because the police threw tear gas at the bus rank, main bus rank, in around half past four in the afternoon, when children were returning from school and taking buses home, it was highly irresponsible, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so even I, even I, at a personal level, was affected by this whole thing. Sure, and, sure. Uh, yeah, but uh, today it's it's sort of quiet. I'm not sure what's happening in the other town, uh, particularly Mazzini, the next most important town in the country, uh, because there was, there was talk that the, the, strike, the protesters were taking the, the matter there uh, today. I, yeah, I don't yeah. know what had happened there. Has there been any sort of response uh, from Eswatini authorities uh, to the demands of the workers? Well, not yet. Not that I know. The king is away, is, is in New York. So I, I guess government is still trying, probably waiting to hear what he has to say in order to respond. I don't know. But there hasn't been anything yet that I've seen, except that uh, over the last few days, government has been saying uh, protesters mustn't disturb people who choose not to go on strike and sort of make threats uh, against those people who will be seen to be intimidating other workers. One of the other things that's happened is that the Communist Party of Swaziland has, has thrown its, its weight behind the strike, saying that uh, all efforts must uh, lead to the dismantling of their Dinkunla system um, and replace it with the People's Democratic Republic. Let's talk a little bit about that and the feasibility of that. You know, What's the general consensus in terms of people who have spoken out around the system is there general dissatisfaction with it well i, I would say that let, let, as a starting point we need to be clear about a few things one of which 
is that it, it, it would be very difficult for Swazi to depose them. Mm-hmm, mm. Anyone who would want to do that would really have difficulty getting the necessary consensus. Not because in King, King Swazi is love, but because the institution itself is still quite strong in Swaziland for, for historical reasons. So people haven't lost faith in the institution in itself. The issue of the political system has, is, is, a, is a matter that has been there for a very long time. But, uh, you know, not, I, wouldn't, I don't think much of, uh, progress has been made towards shifting the mindset of particularly those who are its defenders into seeing need for the reform. I, in fact, I'd argue that the, those who are calling for change haven't been as strong as they probably would have wanted to in mm-hmm. order to change. So you're not going to see much change in that direction. And to be quite honest with you, really, sure. you know, some of us who are watchers of what is going on, uh, you know, I have the impression that the, these protests are not properly planned and properly coordinated. They, they tend to be sporadic. And uh, I think the union and their allies in the political parties. They don't seem to have planned these things uh, properly. For instance, on this, this, this strike was supposed to have started the day before yesterday. Mm-hmm. And on the first day, it was pretty much, it looked like a failure. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of happening now. It will die down. Government will dig in and not give workers what they want. Mm. And in the end, you, people will not be sure why they did what they did. There was also talk around the fact that the South Africa Eswatini border was going to be affected by the strike. Uh, do you have any information on whether that was particularly um, also affected as a result? I haven't read anything in the newspaper. Sure. Mm. I, I don't know to what extent that could have. Mm. And that is Becky Malkobu, editor of Swatini's monthly political magazine, The Nation, talking to Zikonami. So the time is 17.22 Central African time. We'll have more from an African perspective when we come back after this. Jinalangu ni Liz Ogumbo na najifurahisha hapa nikisikiza Channel Africa huku Johannesburg mimi ni mwana mtindo mimi ni msanii um, na eh kweli tumejiburudisha The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, has launched its 2019 Trade and Development Report, which recasts the Depression Era's signature policy as a global Green New Deal to change the rules of the international economic game and make a clean break with years of austerity and insecurity. The report sets out a roadmap that can lead to growth rates of gross domestic product in developed economies of 1% to 1.5% above those generated by current patterns of global demand. More from UNCTAD economist Diana Barrowclough. We focus on, yeah, as I said, questions of economics and trade. We work very closely with member governments. We work usually with um, trade ministries and finance ministries and industrial ministries. And um, we, it is our job is to try and help developing countries integrate into the global economy in a, a better way, in a more equitable way. And in fact, this is why we were set up. UNCTAD was set up 
um, you know, by the group of 77 countries, the developing countries, in, in 1964, when they realised that they needed to have um, a better voice, you know, in global discussions about these things. So yesterday you presented the 2019 Trade and Development Report. Talk to us about it. What was in the report? That's correct. So um, we, we, we presented the report at um, the Reserve Bank in Pretoria. Um, the main messages of the report that I think are very important for South Africa, um, really there's, there's three things that, that I think we need to say. And the first thing is that, you know, the young people are right. The young people who have been protesting in, in South Africa and indeed around the world um, about climate change and the crisis that means, you know, they're right. This is, this, we need to wake up. Um, and so I think it's actually very exciting that they're drawing to our attention issues that, in, in fact, you know, the UN and, and other voices um, have been trying to get on people's radar screen. Um, the second thing I wanted to say is that actually this is a, a double crisis um, and it's related. So the environmental crisis, you know, the threat to our existence by carbon uh, economy is interlinked very, very closely with the economic structure. And, and that's a second crisis that we've got. And, and in fact, we, we're talking about a, what we call an age of anxiety about jobs, about economic livelihoods. You know, in, in South Africa, I recognize this as very strong, but also in other countries around the world too. You know, people have a real sense of anxiety that, you know, life is not getting better. And they, they don't see, when they look at the past or the future for their kids, they don't see that the world is getting better for them. In fact, you know, things seem to be getting worse. So there's a great anxiety about this all over the world, but obviously extremely in, in South Africa. Um, you know, I, I see your um, GDP uh, expectations, which were released yesterday by the, by the Reserve Bank, you know, they're, they're showing that this is pretty bad shape. You know, it's the worst economic condition since 1945. That's a long time ago. Um, and in fact, I'm sorry to say, but the forecast that, that UNCLAD came for South Africa is even worse. Um, the Reserve Bank's forecast is for the GDP growth this year to be something like 0.6%, you know, which is very low. That, that is too low to achieve any of the things that, that you need for development and, and reduction in inequality. And, um, and, and our forecast is worse. Ours is like 0.3%. And I think that's very, very concerning, you know, in the time of where you've got, um, you know, social unrest, poverty, inequality, you know, violence against women. All of these things, I think, are, are deeply related to this very precarious economic situation. Um, now, let's get to the, the third thing I wanted to say, <laughs> is that, you know, this is a pretty bleak picture that I'm painting. Um, but, you know, we do come here with some suggestions about what can be done about it. And I, I think that's important. That's, that's sort of the main message is that what we want to be able to say is, you know, rethink this policy mix. Um, these policies have been tried for a long time. They're not working. Um, they're not working in other countries too. It's not just South Africa that is doing this, you know, the policy of thinking that all you need to be, well, the main thing to sort of to fo focus on is the financial sector or, you know, obsessing about the financial sector, frankly, and, you know, worrying about um, keeping interest rates low and, and these issues that are 
taking away attention from the productive sector of the economy. And uh, so we, we, we come to the report, you know, comes to developing countries with some suggestions for um, really a, a pretty big rethink of the policy mix. And I have to say, we, we're quite encouraged by the fact that, you know, there's a lot of support for this view now building globally. Um, you might have seen uh, certainly in the US and in um, Europe strong pushes for what they're calling a global green new deal. Now, this is bringing together the economic issues of a new deal with the green issues, you know, of the environmental crisis that faces us. Um, and we use this term new deal, you know, it's got a, it's got a real meaning. We, we don't just mean that it's new. What we're doing is that we are harking back to uh, President Roosevelt and the new deal of the 1930s, where President Roosevelt completely rethought the way the economy was going. You know, the crisis then had been caused by excessive power of financial sector. And so one of the first things Roosevelt had to do was to, you know, regulate finance and get finance back in the position of being supporting of, of the economy, not driving it. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. In looking at your headlines, there are calls for new anti-Sisi protests in Egypt following the arrest of at least 1,900 people over the last week over these protests. Sudan will close its borders with Libya and Central Africa, and U.S. lawmakers are preparing to question President Donald Trump's top intelligence official over a whistleblower complaint that sparked an impeachment inquiry. Channel African News, I'm Onelene Zinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Empower Women in Health and Wellness Leadership Summit is taking place today in South Africa's Johannesburg City. The event is specifically designed to explore and address factors that contribute to holistic and comprehensive health as well as wellness. For more on this, we are joined on the line by Dr. Mutumang Diao, uh, Medical Director at Spiral Alu Medical Wellness Center. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you. Now, Doctor, could you tell us what the idea behind the summit is and which dimensions of wellness will it focus uh, attention on? Well, so this is the second year we're holding this summit at the Maslow Hotel in partnership with practitioners who have decided to look more deeply in, in wellness, into wellness, in attaining wellness. And what we do is we explore all aspects of that wellness and what it means for us in today's world, in today's busy world. So, yes, it was a very mixed bag of practitioners who look at plant-based eating, who look at exercise, who look at mind-body connections, who look at relaxation, who look at the challenges of work, and a youth panel that looked at how they are dealing with a very busy environment that... Um, impacting on their lives and possibly affecting the way they can attain their own wellness, including what you have now seen in the last two years with an incredible number of young people attempting to take their own lives or actually succeeding to do so. Now, Doctor, a lot of people don't understand what the notion of being healthy means. I, I think yeah. I don't even understand it myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, could you explain it to us so that we understand it? So traditionally, when you you exercise, you know, you'd go to your traditional conventionally trained doctor and you prescribe, you know, you go away with a 
prescription, go and exercise, go and eat well and all of that. You know, half the problem is that we have a very short amount of time in contact with the client and we actually do not tell the client what it is that we do. Practically what that means is that you go away with a prescription that deals with what it is that we see. Eventually, we have now got to deeper and deeper into finding the root cause or what's causing the disease. It might even be diabetes. It might be hypertension. It might be any of the common chronic diseases, including cancer, which is exhalated in numbers. And so what the consultations are looking at now is going back into how you eat, how you live, what environment that you live in, starting at the home your social connections and relationships with people because all of this impact on your genetic expression and ultimately how you express the disease. So the concept of wellness, as you said, is much, much broader and is impacted by so many other elements that traditionally we're not looking at. And this conference is the beginning of having this conversation that opening up and understanding that going to gym and eating carrots is not the end of the story. There's much, much more to it. And when you say that, uh, you know, we're now looking at aspects that we weren't traditionally looking at, I'd like us to focus specifically on emotional, environmental, and financial yeah. well-being yeah. Uh, as yeah. factors yeah. that affect one's holistic well-being. How yeah. much do they actually affect one's yeah. well-being? I mean, a lot of people in the room obviously work, and a lot of the, the discussions in the morning session were coming from the world of work and how the the stressors that come from the world of work. Typically, you would leave your home in the morning, you'd get to work. So it's already taken a lot of stress from the environment, pre-traffic. By the time you get to a workplace, you're so overly stressed, and everything else, meeting deadlines, and then at the sunset, you pack your computers and go back, go through the same traffic, and then you go and do what you need to do. When you look at the financial wellness, are you happy with the state of your financial wellness? And there's a very big difference between being rich and being poor in this context. It's about are you comfortable and happy with your finances, with the life that you lead? When you talk about professional wellness, it's most of us actually spend time in there. If you're working in the context of work, we spend a lot of time at work. When you get home, Either the kids are asleep or our partners are asleep, we have very little time. And this point was visited a lot of times today. But we actually live with people, but we have no emotional connection with them. And the way we express ourselves when stress has come into our life is a big, big issue with how we have been wired to react to stressors in the environment. And a lot of us actually build up the stress over time to a point where sometimes you just collapse and you don't know why. There's a cancer, you don't know why. It's just the slow buildup of stress and the, the chemical toxicity that's in our body that's feeding into the stress that ultimately becomes disease. And, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to understand and understanding what it is that's blocking us from getting to the ultimate state of wellness. So all of those aspects, financial, your professional environment, the environment within which you work, your physical uh, thing is important. Our spirituality as well. When you stop and think and just get in touch with yourself, your inner self, and reassess your purpose in this existence, we're so busy that most of us don't even get to that thing. 
So all of this are important. And I think we're hoping that into the future, this will become an annual event, more than an annual event, with people uh, getting sort of an, a self-care audit on a regular basis so that when they go to the doctor, they've done half the work. I mean, there's a lot of expectation that when you get to the doctor, they'll give you all the answers. It really is only one tiny little bit of an element of wellness. There's just lots more we can do as individuals to actually look into, into ourselves. And the government can do that for us. The government can provide the environment within which our, uh, our wellness and our wellness journey can be facilitated to be achieved. But the individual in this instance is very, very critical in attaining that level of wellness. And with regards to expectations when it comes yeah. to the Empower Women in Health and Wellness Le- yeah. Leadership Summit, uh, which is taking place, has it met your expectations and the rest of the people in attendance? If, if, you, if you measure expectation by the number of people that want this to happen already in two months, I think we're very pleased that this is happening. And the planning for the next one is already starting this afternoon. Because I think, truly, what we are dealing with is a, it's connected to what it is that we see happening in our country on a larger scale. I mean, we are not different. We are not not impacted by the stresses, whether it's economic, whether it's environmental. All of that stuff we take in every day without even realizing how critical it is to our wellness. So I think we part achieved what it is that we wanted to do because we wanted to reach more people. But we're happy to say that the people in the room have probably taken it as a personal challenge because that was at the center of the discussion today, that it starts with the individual. And lastly, Doctor, how successful do you think such meetings are in bridging issues of comprehensive health as well as Look, wellness we, we and the bringing first, them to yeah. the fore? Yeah, we're not the first people that are doing this. And then when you start talking to people, you realize that there are pockets of people, not only here, but everywhere around the world that are actually beginning to reflect on why it is that we need to go back to the basics. We need to move a little bit more. We need to be very, very mindful about the food that we put in our body. We need to be exceptionally mindful about the health relationships around us. We need to be very, very, very mindful about taking time out occasionally out of our very, very busy lives. who are hijacking all the efforts of trying to achieve our wellness. So we're very happy to be part of that movement. And all we can say that we'd like to see this as a national movement of individuals inside our families and society at large looking more and more towards wellness so that we are not stressing about trying to treat disease where we basically lost the the fight. By the time we get ill, we actually lost the fight. Mm. All right, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. But thank you for calling me. All right. And that's Dr. Motomang Diao, Medical Director at Spiral Allo Medical Wellness Center in South Africa. The South African medical scheme MedShield says partnerships between medical schemes and different stakeholders are needed in order to make access to healthcare a reality for historically excluded people. MedShield shared its plans to offer South Africans what is what it says is affordable and accessible medical insurance with Channel Africa. More from Tonishan Naidu, Principal Officer at MedShield.
when we went into our 2020 benefit design, we focused on members and being member-centric. So we positioned ourselves around four things. One is about providing greater choices for our members. Two, about unlocking better benefits for them. Three, about enabling low and affordable increases. And four, about enhancing member value. About providing greater choices, we've unlocked four new additional options. In our prime and compact, a new digital plan for called MediCurve, as well as a low-cost benefit option called MediAlpha. Why this is important as well is we've unlocked through our innovation and so forth and through our compact, members will experience a 0% increase who opt onto the compact network. And then for the more fluent plans, there'll be an increase of up to 12.5%. And then besides that, we're also offering better benefits. So we've been the first pioneer benefit called SmartCare, which provides access to unlimited nursing care, as well as video med, telemedicine, GP. That'll be standard across all our going to 2020. The other important piece which we're doing is focusing more on families. So in one of our flagship plans called MediValue, we're increasing the day-to-day benefit limits by up to 9% for families. How does MedShield manage to stay competitive and look after its members' needs with good quality healthcare so expensive? Part of it is ground in, in innovation, right? We actually look at how do we unlock better innovation for our membership. Part of it is through if we introduce networks, which means a select hospital network with the FP nomination and designated service providers for pharmacy, etc., we can reduce the price. And this is governed on the principle of care coordination. So those members that, and these are the principles that encompass the compact network, and those members will experience a 0% increase. On top of it, we're financially sustainable. So we have, at the end of 2018, we have a 38% solvency ratio when the industry regulatory requirements only 25%. So we've taken a targeted strategy to say, let us unlock benefit for our members by tapping into some of our reserves and affording them better benefits and, and lower increases. Mr. Nai, do, do you think that there have been enough partnerships and cooperation between medical schemes, medical scheme members and healthcare providers in keeping medical aid affordable? Yes, I think we as MedShield do not work in isolation. We enable this healthcare environment through our stakeholders. We've got to make sure that tariffs are kept at a minimum or if at least increase that CPI. At the same point, we've got to work together to say, look, we work in a very, very price-sensitive market in South Africa. The only way we make sure we're able to make this sustainable is to say we must cut back on the overutilization. So if a member doesn't need to go for tests or doesn't need to have certain more expensive medication and prescribed generic medication, then we can unlock additional value. And this requires more than just medical. It requires the pharmacy, the doctor, the hospital provider, all to come to the party and say, how do we create a sustainable future for our member? And what would you say are the key challenges this sector faces that are worth noting? Sure. So I think, you know, firstly, healthcare is the most complex industry in, in the entire world. Members can quite often undervalue their health. They would rather put more money into their tangible assets, for example, like their cars, rather than looking after the healthcare, but not realizing your car can be fixed 100%, but not your health, right, if you incur. 
So one is, is the nonchalant, sometimes understanding of healthcare by our members. The second part, literally about what we're experiencing in healthcare inflationary drivers. Firstly, we know CPI in this particular year is around 5%. Tariffs are increasing at just above, at 0.3% above CPI. So tariffs will increase roughly in line with CPI. But the biggest challenge which we experience is utilization. Every year, members get older. And when they get older, they actually require more healthcare interventions. They develop more chronic conditions and more diseases. And that means they need to see more GPs, more hospitals, etc. And what compounds this is every single year, we see a plethora of new medicines and technologies. Unfortunately, these new medicines, particularly the oncology medicines, come at a, at a cost of sometimes 2 million rand per treatment. Our duty and you know, our social mandate is to try and actually pay for these to make sure our members are healthy. In terms of embracing industrial technological revolution in order to provide access to quality private health care, are medical aid schemes doing enough of this in your view? So in my view, technology is a powerful enabler and through technology we can unlock access to innovative care. And I must say, as Mitchells, we've been pioneering what we call the benefit called smart care. We're the first medical aid scheme in, in South Africa to provide for this benefit, which offers unlimited nurse-led consultations with access to a video med doctor consultation. So it's telemedicine. So this is embracing fourth industrial revolution. And I think South Africa has lagged behind the fourth industrial revolution because we very much want that face-to-face interaction. So here we've got the nurse who gives you the face-to-face interaction and the GP who actually gives you the right level of quality of care. And that was Tuneshan Naidu, Principal Officer at MedShield in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. But right now, let's go on over uh, to Tracy Boomgaard for your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. The Banking Association of South Africa says it will return to the drawing board to engage unions, government and banks on the way forward. This after Business Unity South Africa succeeded in getting an interdict to stop a protest in the banking sector on Friday. Basa says it respects the right of workers to protest, but a solution must be found. Members of the South African Society of Banking Officials organized the protest. They are demanding an end to retrenchments and digitalization in the banking sector. Bowser's Kaskuvadia explains. It's unfortunate that we had to go to court for the interdict because if proper procedure was followed and a Section 77 notice was issued, we wouldn't have gone to court. I think that what we need to now do is get to NetLack and, and discuss the underlying issues that actually are creating a situation in the economy where retrenchment even has to be considered. Kenya's tea export earnings are likely to fall to $1.3 billion this year compared to $1.4 billion last year due to a sharp decrease in export volumes. This is according to the East African Tea Trade Association. 
which represents growers, buyers, tea packers and brokers from the region. It says a tea glut as well as political events and their key export markets have led to a reduced demand and therefore low prices. Apple is set to open its first flagship store in all of Latin America in the upscale neighborhood in Mexico City. The U.S. tech giant is taking advantage of this launch to show off the sleek store design, which is one of the company's hallmarks. All the latest Apple products, like the iPhone 11 and the Apple Watch Series 5, will be available for purchase. Zambians are yet to receive another expensive increase as the country plans to hike electricity tariffs, as announced by the Energy Minister Matthews Nkua. This week, Zambia Electricity Supply Corporation Patrick Mwila, Director of Strategy and Corporate Services, announced that Zambians should brace for a 200% hike. It will appear as if you are paying more, but you must remember that that is a, a heavy subsidy that is enjoyed by everyone. But if you consume in the 15 cents and those as well in the 89 category, it will be a mix. So I'll just say that uh, on average, you, you may see it, it could be a jump of, of about uh, 200% in terms of your, your bill or less or more, depending on your consumption. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says it's unlikely that the United States and China will secure a new trade deal any time before next year's election. U.S. President Donald Trump has, however, said the two world's largest economies may reach an agreement sooner than expected. Dimon didn't go into much detail of why he doesn't think there will be a trade deal, but the prevailing train of thought is that China will take its chances by waiting out Trump's first term to see if he loses the 2020 election. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.27 Nigerian Naira, 10.82 Botswana Pula at 102.65 Kenyan Shilling and at 13.06 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.16 Brazilian Hail, 64.12 Russian Ruble, 70.84 Indian Rupee, 7.12 Chinese Wang and at 14.96 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 91 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,509 and platinum at $929 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.35 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for your sport. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with football news. South Africa's national women's under-17 football team will face Zambia in the semi-finals of the ongoing Kosafa under-17 women's championship in Mauritius. 
The match takes place on Friday afternoon at the San Francisco Chavero Stadium in Port Louis with kickoff at 1300pm Central African time. Bantwana come into the semi-finals having won all of their group matches convincingly. They registered the highest score of the tournament with a 28-nil threshing of the Seychelles in their opening match. They went on to defeat Botswana 5-1 in their second match and then defeated Madagascar 3-1 in their final group match on Wednesday. Head coaches in Pua Lulu says they will need to be at their best against Zambia. I think um, more than anything it is to try and get uh, into the field as fresh as possible because again, like I said, uh, moving from group stage to the semi-finals a day in between is not enough to rest. Uh, But it is for us to keep focus and the focus is how do we implement more uh, or tactical plan and execute it even better so that we are able to play against the aggressive opponent that is athletic as well uh, because they have a diehard um, mentality. So how do we go against that? It means we have to be tactically disciplined. It means we need to be aware of our spaces, aware of what they are doing as well and double up on our effort because we might be a, a bit thinner from them in terms of stature and height as well. So it means everything we do, we need to do as a group. We need to work as a team. In the other semi-final, East African guest nation, Uganda, take on Botswana in the first semi-final that kicks off at 9 a.m. Central African time on Friday. Cameroon's new coach, new co- Portuguese coach Tony Consecao, handed a maiden call-ups to new players as he named his first indomitable Lions squad. France-based duo Ignatius Ganago and Harold Mugodi have been included on a 29-man list for a friendly against Tunisia on the 12th of October. The 20-year-old Ganago has been impressive for Nice this season, scoring a goal in seven games in League One. The striker has already scored against Tunisia this year for the Cameroon's under-23 side to seal the country's place at the 2019 Under-23 Africa Cup of Nations in Egypt, which also acts as the qualifiers for next year's Olympics. The 21-year-old France-born defender Mugodi is a former French youth international but is eligible to switch on to Cameroon, where his parents are from. South African Premier League side Mamelodi Sundowns will be looking to score more goals when they take a Seychelles team Cote on in the CAF Champions League first round second leg at Lash in Atrashville tomorrow night. Sundowns convincingly won 5-0 in their first leg away match. Defender Somaro Bangali played in Seychelles and is confident they will score more goals. You know, in football, you have to respect everything, even you beat them. They are playing Champions League, so it means it's good. Eh? So you have to win, and you're playing home. So I think you have to win that game. And it's good for us if you win maybe again another 6 7 and you score too many goals. The other team also, they are watching us in Champions League. Maybe they can skate, and it's good for us. In athletics news, six South African athletes, including some of the country's leading medal contenders, will open the national team's campaign tomorrow's day one of competition at the 2019 IAAF World Championships in Doha, Qatar. Up first are long jump stars Luvo Manyonga and Rushal Samayi, who are expected to progress beyond the qualifying round without too much trouble as they go in search of a place in the men's final. Manyonga 
Tonga, who will defend the world title he won at the 2017 version of the championship in London, will compete in Group A, while Samai, who secured a podium double for Team SA by begging bronze in the English capital two years ago, will turn out in Group B. The fastest men in South Africa will be the first members of the team to compete on the track, with the national record holder Agani Simbine, 20-year-old prospect Tandotlodlo, an experienced campaigner and national champion Simon Mahakwe, lining up in the 100 heats to fight for semi-final sports. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemaani. This is Africa Digest. That's the first hour down. Be sure to join us again in an hour's time at 1900 hours Central African time. But in the meantime, you can hop onto all of our platforms. You can send us a comment on WhatsApp, plus 277-6300-3327. You can also send us an email info at channelafrica.co.za or you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Izzy Tabas Java featuring Bukhlebenda. Oh, no. 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 Oh,